Good morning. I forgot in giving information about uh, who I am that I, and I noticed that as we were driving down here this morning that about, I didn't figure out the exact years ago, but 28, 29, or more than that, 38, 39 years ago, uh, we pastored two churches out on Swans Island. So we spent two years riding the ferry back and forth, and I actually have quite a few distant relatives out there, and was honored greatly by the postmistress saying, welcome home, when I came to open up a post office box. Uh, so we kind of, our neighbors a little bit way back then, so driving down reminded me of the trips we've taken this way. This morning, I would like to look at the book of 1 Corinthians, not the whole book, but the first four chapters. And Blake just said, go ahead, and when you're finished, just stop, and if there's anybody left, you can give a benediction. <laughs> Uh, but I'd like to look at the first four chapters in an overview, particularly centering on the gospel. And Paul has some issues here. And just as a little background, how do we prioritize issues that churches have? Now, this church, the Corinthian church, had problems. They had a man who was committing adultery. And yet there was a problem in Paul's mind that had a higher priority. I want to address this first before we get to the issue of adultery. And what was that issue? What does he start to bring up in chapter 1? And he covers in chapters 2 and 3 and finally wraps it up somewhat in chapter 4. That there was divisions among themselves. And not so much that there were false teachers because the teachers that he lists are Paul and Peter. They're all pretty sound guys. And Apollos, and he tossed even Christ in there, because various people in the congregation had favorites. And he doesn't say that they would not come if so-and-so was speaking or whatever, but they attached themselves. And so Paul spends a little bit of time saying, now, who did I baptize? Who has got my signature on that baptismal certificate and is parading that around as being extra credit along with the gospel? And so in verse 17, Paul says, in the context, I am thankful that I did not baptize many of you, that God didn't send me here to baptize. So he's not addressing problems like in the letter to the Galatian church, where he says, if anybody proclaim a gospel other than what I've proclaimed, let them be damned, let them be sent to hell. Paul is not saying that. He's addressing more the problem of the church people in the pews. Who are you attaching yourself to and why? And Paul views this as a major problem, even more probably important since he starts with it first, than the man who is having an immoral sexual relationship. Furthermore, I haven't had an opportunity to go through the whole books of First and Second Corinthians for some time. But over the past, I don't know, 10 or 15 years as I've looked at them occasionally, the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians has changed. I haven't got the same Bible, if you would, that I had years ago. I used to think, well, Romans was really theological. Ephesians was right in there as well. I liked those books. The 1 Corinthians and the 2 Corinthians were okay. But lately, as I've looked at various parts of these books for various reasons, this book and his companion, 2 Corinthians, is full of theological statements and positions. Paul is arguing that right from the beginning. 
Now, one of the things that I'm not going to try to do is cover a lot of the specifics. And I've got a certain point in mind that I want to get across. There's going to be other things that maybe we'll just touch upon, and I'm not going to develop that. I would encourage you to look at Paul's discussion of these things and ask the Lord to continue to feed you from this passage of Scripture. But that's a little bit of the background here. So Paul, as he's writing, he is saying... Um, who did I baptize? I don't really remember. So how does that stand out for significance? <laughs> but he says, some of you I did. And the discussion of, you know, I'm for Apollos. I really like him as opposed to Paul. He's really just plain nothing there, no excitement, no nothing. And then Apollos, he's a good speaker. Uh, Peter, you know, he's kind of not really educated too well. He's okay, but, you know, I'd rather listen to Apollos or whatever the argument for the various people would go. Not that they're saying anything wrong or right. They're saying the gospel. But what else were these people attaching to the gospel? People. Human beings. And Paul says, whoa, wait a minute. There's a huge problem. Is there a problem in our churches today? I suppose so. I think so. Partly because I find it true in my own heart. And I suspect others do as well. So let's take a look at this. We're going to primarily look at verses 17, 18, and 19. And then flow with Paul a little bit into the next several chapters for this. Uh, as far as the church being established. And who is the church, the individual believers as well as the church supposed to hang on to and clasp. So in verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul writes this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquence, wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, of course, they'll go on and we'll touch upon what he says after this. But look at these words as we begin uh, uh, the, our message today. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Okay, so he says to baptize. Okay, I did some of that, but that's not really why I'm here. It's not really something I put up a high priority. And obviously, Paul, if you look at the list here, how many people did he baptize? And he struggled to remember this. Oh, yeah, I, I baptized those guys too. Not very many. It wasn't really important to Paul. Did he read the Great Commission and say, we've got to baptize? Uh, I think there probably were people who were baptized, but he himself didn't do the baptizing. I came to preach the gospel. Then he added something that I think is very important and significant. And he adds a, a clause, a conditional clause to that. I came to preach the gospel. I was sent to preach the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom. And he gives a reason for that. Why not with words of eloquent wisdom or speech, lest the message of the cross be emptied? And translations vary with, you know, empty of its power. The word power isn't there in the Greek text. It's just emptied. Now, the context, of course, the next verse talks about the power of the cross. Also, the wisdom of the cross is mentioned in the context. So those are very likely things to put in there. 
But I pictured it in my own mind as something that maybe at one time had lots of power, like maybe an old car that you've just been babying and taking care of, and then lo and behold, it's been forgotten. Now you can't even turn the key on because there's no electricity, there's no power, the gas is all gone, the tires are rotten, the car is just deteriorated. Now maybe for somebody it might still have value, and wow, look at that, I found a real treasure. But it doesn't work anymore. The shell is still there, the frame is still there, we recognize the shape is still there, we recognize the purpose, but there's no power anymore. And so Paul is saying, if I add to the proclamation of the gospel... Words that we humans think are eloquent, are powerful, are clever, are full of wisdom. What will I do to the actual message of the cross? I'll make it an empty skeleton with no power, with no glory, except maybe what me, I, as an individual, a human being, might attach to it. And Paul says, I wasn't crucified (laughs) For anybody, there's only one person, one being that stands in that place. So that's the text. Now, Paul is going to address this in the next chapter and in chapter six and a little bit. I mean, see, I get my numbers. Whatever I think and say, you know, wrong, you just interpret correctly. I don't make any mistakes here. <laughs> okay, so chapters two and three, and then even into chapter four, he's addressing this. Very pointedly sometimes. Then in verse 18, for the word of the cross, and it's not the actual preaching that he is concerned about, but it's a specific proclamation. Later on in chapter 15, he very specifically talks about what the gospel is. And as Christ was crucified according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And then according to the scriptures, what else happened? He came alive. He arose. And Paul summarizes the gospel in those simple words. Of course, who is Christ? We could expand upon. Is he just a man? Is he a prophet? Or is he really the son of God who came in the flesh and lived among us? The righteous one, the righteous lamb of God who died for our sins. And we get back into those points of the gospel again. So it's, it's much bigger than that in the sense, but what really is the gospel? It's Christ crucified, buried, and risen according to the scriptures. Not according to Paul or Apollos or Peter, but according to the scriptures. The word of God that has stood. And we, we too, I, I, I talked to Blake a little bit about what to speak. And I said, we're going to start Hebrews pretty soon. I would love to preach a message from Hebrews. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've already got three or four messages on the first couple of verses already planned. So, so I guess we're going in the same direction. But you look at the book of Hebrews, and what is the position of Christ? In the past, there's been words that God has sent through his prophets in various ways and through various means. But in these last days, God sent his son. And the scriptures tell us, hear him. And I was in a little discussion actually with a son-in-law who's not a believer and he posts some things that she thinks is provocative on uh, Facebook to stir up conversation and get ideas. And I don't often join in 
But he talked something about what is the, the real purpose of, of mankind or something to this effect. I forget what that question was. And I simply said to believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And somebody came back with something and I, I says, because he is those things. That's what makes it true. It's not my opinion. Now, whether anybody else believes that or not, is that really important? Well, yes, it is to some level. But for me as a believer and for me as somebody who would teach the gospel before the church of God, what must I be concerned about most of all? The proclamation of the scriptures, but particularly pointed to the cross of Christ, to the one who came and said, I am God come in the flesh. And I really enjoy the Christmas uh, season in, in Matthew 1, 21, that Christ came, his name shall be Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And this verse, verse 18, is touching upon that. The word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. In Sunday school this morning, in the adult class here, there was a little discussion about child rearing, and I thought, wow, there's so many things being said that just fit right in. So those of you who are in the class, uh, you know, you, you plug in some of these things here. But do we truly, as young believers, understand the gospel as well as we do now? And part of my message in putting this together was, no! I would confess, along with some of you apparently, that I did not understand the gospel. I had lots of answers. I had some of the theology, and I was really on top of it, maybe even more so than I am now. But it didn't really touch my heart and life in the sense of how do I practice and how do I worship God. And Paul is going to touch upon that, and we'll get to that, Lord willing, as we go through here. But the realization of people perishing, but also of me possibility that I was perishing. But I'm a good guy, right? I didn't do this like so-and-so did, and I didn't get wrapped up in this bad habit, and I really don't drink coffee either. (laughs) So what more is there? (laughs) Am I really perishing? And a long time ago in a church, I was visiting one of the older ladies in the church, we were discussing some of the issues of theology and, and uh, just favorite hymns and other things that were sort of coming up. And she confessed that she did not like the hymn Amazing Grace. Can you guess why? She did not view herself as a wretched person. So in the conversation, how did she understand the gospel. So what role did Christ play in her salvation, if any? I'm not really that bad. Maybe I just need some help. And truly, in in Hebrews chapter 2, Christ came to help the seed of Abraham, right? (laughs) Is that in the same plane, the same level? Or is it a much deeper help like, you guys cannot do anything to help yourself. You don't even want to help yourself. You don't know how to do that. And you can't. And you're perishing. And I haven't read this for a long time, but Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim started out with a great conviction that he was in danger 
that his soul was in danger. And he didn't know at first where to go. But he said, I've got to flee the danger that I'm in. And to paraphrase it, God, help me. And God, of course, did point him eventually to the cross and bring him safely home. So the first thing as we look at this, do I, even as a believer, let alone somebody today who might not be a believer, do I understand that if I'm apart from Christ, I have no merit, no standing, no position before God, except that I'm a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. And as John 3, not verse 16, but the last verse, 36, brings out that the wrath of God is upon us. And in some ways, the church needs to restore in the gospel a simple statement, not so much that God loves you, but if you're a sinner, the wrath of God is upon you. Paul says very plainly, I guess, it's folly to those who are perishing. But on the other hand, there are people who are being saved. It's interesting, the, the, the idea of perishing, the, the, the voice of that is, uh, it could be middle voice or past voice, meaning you know, we're participating in it somewhat or it's, it's happening to us. But saved is clearly, being saved is in the passive voice. And I was working on this message off and on over the past several weeks. And one of my Facebook friends, a classmate from high school, had a birthday. And it dawned on me as seniors, are the end of our senior year of spring, the first time we went swimming, he and I and some other people went to a small pond. And there was this float out in the middle and we swam out and I was there first. And one of the girls started yelling at me. But this guy over here, he's drowning. And he was. And I had taken a life-saving course the year before at summer camp. <laughs> Although I was a very poor swimmer, I just dove in and grabbed him like I was supposed to, followed the book exactly, I think. <laughs> and I brought him over to the dock. And he, here was this guy having his birthday. Why is he here? Well, in God's providence, I was there. But what did I do and what did he do? If I remember the scene at all, he wasn't doing much except thrashing around. And if somebody hadn't been there, he might not have been there in this world much longer. But the idea, he was not actively swimming. He was not actively participating in getting from one point to another. He was just floundering and was perishing. And he was saved passively. I acted upon him. I grabbed him. I pulled him to the dock. That's a personal example. It just came into my mind. I hadn't remembered that for some time. And here the statement is, we are not participating in this saving thing ourselves. We are being acted upon by a savior. And so as I understand the gospel, does that get into my thinking, my meditation, my understanding? It's not that I heard something and I responded with great joy and I ran up and I was one of the first ten people in line and I got saved because I was in those first ten people. That's, you know, who, who got saved that day? Or did God in his grace redeem me? 
who was not worthy, who was not having any ability in that direction. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 that we were enemies, we were helpless, we were sinners, and yet Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. So part of the understanding of the gospel and part of the point that Paul is getting to, we need to understand that this is not man's operation. The saving thing comes about upon us because God acts through Christ Jesus, and particularly through the plain spoken message of the gospel. And it is the power of God. And again, I'm getting older as I surmise that some of you guys are as well. And I don't know that I was ever a super strong man, but I have noticed things are heavier now than they used to be. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm not going to dazzle you with any feats of strength today. I wouldn't even try. But the power of God... God is set to dazzle us. And if you read Ephesians chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, Paul is praying for these saints, and he's said, I'm praying that you would understand and know the power that God exercised towards you in Christ Jesus. When he raised Christ from the dead, and they go into chapter 2, what happened? He raised us, who are believers, his people, with Christ. And he raised us up to the very presence of God and seated us in Christ in heavenly places. And he's back to chapter 1, verse 3. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, that is power. It's not something that's trinkled out to you a little bit here, there, a little bit here. This is massive. This is the most powerful demonstration of power, of righteousness and love that the universe will ever see. And I find sometimes to confess, I yawn. (laughs) I've heard the gospel before. I think this is especially challenging to pastors. What's coming up in like uh, almost, yeah, it is exactly, today's the 25th, one month from now. And so how many pastors say, okay, for the past 10 years, I've covered all the obvious passages about Christ coming. What am I going to do and say to keep these people here this Christmas? The same old story? How can I make a new twist to it? And immediately when you start to think, I've got to do something to keep them here, man's wisdom is starting to play upon that topic. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing here. Why do I sometimes yawn at the gospel, but may be tempted, enticed even, by a little simple twist from Mr. So-and-so over there. Oh, he's got a, a really interesting perspective on the gospel. And so Paul continues on in verse 19, quoting, and I'm not going to delve into the, the background of these quotes. There's several throughout all, all the passages. Most of us have Bibles with footnotes and, and cross-references. I would encourage you to look at them, but it would just would take too much time. So he quotes from the Old Testament, and he's saying... What God said, he's putting the words of God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I would offer you to a thought that, that there's two things that God is doing in this world, in this age right now. One is God is saving his people. 
The other one is God is keeping those who are damned under damnation. God is actually actively thwarting the wisdom of this world. We'll get to a point in just a minute down at the end of the chapter. But notice Pharaoh and how Pharaoh is pictured or portrayed in the scriptures in relationship to the gospel and in relationship to the salvation of um, the Israelites and even pointing forward to a greater salvation that would come through Christ. Pharaoh was powerful. Pharaoh had wisdom, the Egyptian wisdom that even Moses was trained in. He had his magicians and other people around. He had their gods. And God is saying, I am paraphrasing it greatly, but I, God is saying, I set this guy up with all of his power, with all of his wisdom, with his surrounding counselors and, and advisors to knock him down because he's the greatest power right here. And I am going to set my people free. And of course, it came through the blood of the Passover lamb pointing to Christ. So God is thwarting what men would think is wisdom, capability, position, power, and so forth. So if you go down through this, we find that Paul continues to expand upon this. And then he says, but consider your calling in verse 26. Consider your election, how God has chosen you. And there's several verses that use different terms here. Why did he do that? So we could take a little survey. Okay, let's take the the top um, 30 good-looking people here today. Certainly God wants good-looking people in his kingdom, right? (laughs) Or whatever we want to put in for a category. Does God work like that? And scripture emphatically says no. But in this context, God chooses the things that are not anything at all. And I remember back in school, we had pickup games of baseball or softball and various things. And and I think this is tragic to do it this way, and I really don't recommend doing it. Uh, But we would start off with so-and-so. He was always number one, always number two picked for the team. And there's always those two or three people that nobody really wanted on the team. Well, God starts out with those people that nobody wants on their team. He picks the things that are nobody's, not noble, not wise, not intelligent. But he picks these things out. Why? To manifest that if anything is accomplished through these people, it doesn't come from them. Now, that's pretty humili- uh, <laughs> humbling. And I have to say, as, as part of my testimony that I have realized over the years that I'm not anywhere as bright and witty and intelligent as I once thought I was. Now, maybe we could have a show of hands, anybody else fall into that category. Uh, But I I say to myself, how come I didn't catch on to that point earlier? Whether it be about the scriptures or the gospel or so many other things in life. How did I ever get to where I am now? Well, by the grace of God, he just kept me here one day after another. And and lo and behold, I'm here. But it takes people who the world might not really desire to take to manifest and show off his power. Now, the last three verses of chapter 1, I think, are very important and significant. So starting with verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, for the sake of the positioning, you know, I'm in the position of God up here, and you guys are approaching God. Why are you here? How did you get here? 
And he's simply saying, if anybody walks into this assembly boasting in what they have done, they're not welcome. They have no standing here. It's like the man at the wedding feast who came in and did not have a garment. And he was speechless. He was cast out. God has so constructed the gospel, and not just the proclamation of it, but how it works in people, how people come from salvation, and, I mean, from damnation to salvation, to glory even, as he talks about in chapter 2. How does that work? Not through you, God said. Not through giving you any platform to stand upon and say, I did it, I did it. Maybe it was just a small, insignificant thing, but I did something better than so-and-so did over there, and I'm on my way to heaven. And Paul said, God says no. Every single step of the way is so constructed by God in His wisdom, which appears to be foolishness to the world, so that God will say, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. And God's people and even all of creation will respond with praise and worship at the great things that God has done. So going on into chapter, uh, the next verse, verse 30, and we could spend a whole day or more on verse 30, but I'm not going to. But he lists four things. But notice how he starts the verse. He is the source. Literally, literally it says, out of him. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. How did you get to be there? God, the Father, put you there. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Whom God made, that is Christ, He made Christ to be our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption, all parts of salvation. So that Christ has become those things to us. We cannot come before God and say, Oh, I don't need Christ's wisdom. I don't need Christ's redemption. I don't need Christ's sanctification. I've got some of these points pretty well lined up. And God says in his gospel, no. Nobody is going to stand before me and say, I don't need this about Christ. But rather in our humility and our praise and worship, we will say, I need Christ. Christ and Christ alone is my salvation. So the last verse, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I would encourage every one of us here, including myself, to take some time, take stock of your theology. Do you have platforms built into your theology where you might get up and boast? I was talking with a guy one time, and he says, but Christians don't boast. But in our conversation, he was actually acknowledging that there were points here. We could if we wanted to, but Christians don't do that. He really didn't understand the gospel. And hopefully he's grown, as I've grown over the years. But do we have a gospel, do we have a theology that's constructed from the Word of God that says this is God, and God completely, and God alone. So to continue the proclamation of the gospel, Paul in chapter 2 says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, certainly everybody who teaches the gospel has got their own likes, their own style, their own personality. And so some people perhaps just naturally are more eloquent than others. Some people are just plain boring. But the message is not so much to be clothed in me, in my presentation, or somebody else in their presentation. 
But listen to what Paul said. The testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Wow. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message was not, were not of plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, what is Paul concerned about again in that last verse? That somehow we would shift from resting in the power of God to the wisdom, to the eloquence, to the craftiness of people. I'm not asking for names or suggestions of who might fall into this category, but we all have heard about people, if we don't know them personally, who are false teachers. They have the charisma. They have millions sometimes of people following them and millions of dollars coming into their uh, treasury. Maybe, or sometimes they're just the poor guy next door. But do we have a following? I'd like to just digress for a second here. and I've got a couple of quotes. One of them I saw in the Sunday school room, the unadjusted gospel. Uh, I started to read that uh, rather slowly. Um, But I'd like to quote a paragraph from that. It's found on... uh, Page 30. We can, I won't read the whole paragraph, I'll just read parts of it. We can, in a sense, create a people by other means. Listen to what this guy says. We can, in a sense, create a people by other means, other than the gospel. And this is the great temptation of pastors. We can create a people around a certain ethnicity. We can create a people around a fully graded choir program about decorating the church for Christmas, to tie that in, or about raising our kids for the glory of God. Everybody go to the adult Sunday school class and and get the information you need. Now, those things, I'm not trying to say, are bad. But do people come to our church to participate in those programs? Then we've made a people around something else other than the gospel. So he continues on giving several examples of that. We can even create a people around the personality of a preacher. Imagine that. And God can surely use all these things. But we can only see the true church of God if it has been created by the word of God, by those who crave it and feed off of it for their soul. And I think that was right in line with what Paul was saying here in these first opening chapters. The gospel. And the gospel alone has got to be what feeds us, what gives us light, what sustains us, what gives us hope for now and forevermore. The gospel of Christ. The plain gospel of Christ. The simple gospel of Christ. And not wrapped up in a program that even might be good, but that stands all by itself. And to say that we are here today to worship Christ, or to worship God through Christ, because of the cross and the resurrection. And Paul argues very strongly, beware, be careful. You can slip over to something wrapped up by a human being, 
And God says, that human being is holding you now. I'm not. And what's going to happen to that? I'd like to skip ahead by looking at chapter 3 a little bit. There's lots of neat stuff in chapter 2, and maybe we'll get back there in just a minute. I'd like to follow this theme about, okay, the human wisdom part, the cleverness of speech, uh, the eloquence of speech, and how do we attract people with that? And what are the consequences of doing that? Now, in chapter 3, Paul continues on. He says, you know, I, I would like to speak more deeply with you about things, but you're, you're childish, you're ignorant in many ways, and so we can't do that. But we do have a wisdom, and he argues in chapter 2 and, and here in chapter 3 somewhat, a wisdom that is of God that we proclaim to those who are wise spiritually. And then he goes in to a little discussion about gardening and building a building. Now, over the years, my wife and I both garden, in vegetable gardens. She takes care of most of the flowers by herself. And it has varied depending on who had the most kids to take care of, <laughs> your husband or wife, or you know, who, whose job was the most demanding at the time. And so we've gone back and forth a little bit about who's the chief gardener. Right now, my wife is the chief gardener uh, with a little bit of help and supervision from me. Uh, so, uh, but no matter what is going on, why is it that things grow in our garden? My wife's a good gardener. My wife gives good, good advice from her husband. Or God causes things to grow. Now, we can argue, but, you know, if you didn't garden and didn't take care of the soil and you didn't water it, things wouldn't grow. God doesn't seem to entertain that argument. But he says three places in this chapter that God is the one who makes things grow. And if you look at this in verse 5 of chapter 3, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. And then listen to this next phrase. As the Lord assigned to each. So who gave those people to Paul? Who gave those people to Apollos? Who made that life, spiritually speaking, happen? Apollos? Or Paul? No. God gave people to these servants of the Lord. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, and notice how Paul and Apollos seem to be on the same plane. That's deliberately stated here, I think, by Paul. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters it anything. Going back to, what am I? I'm nothing. I'm a servant of God by his grace. That he's chosen to save people through these means. He who plants and he who waters are one and each. Oh, I skipped that part. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So in the analogy of the field here, why is there any spiritual growth, any spiritual life, happening in that field. Apollos did a good job. Paul did a great job. Maybe. But that's not the reason why there's growth there, why there's life there. There's life there because God has spoken. And every like in chapter 4 of Second Corinthians, he talks about being blinded by the eyes of the, the, the God of this world. 
But then he says the same, I'm paraphrasing it again, that the, the God who spoke in the beginning, let there be light, caused his light to shine in you. How do we see things spiritually? How do we have spiritual life? It doesn't come about through spiritual evolution. It comes about through a direct statement and call and command of God. So Paul is making that argument for the, the field. And he's making that argument for the building as well. And then he goes on and talks about a building. And he argues, and I think in the context, this is the only right way of taking this, uh, this picture that Paul presents there, is suppose somebody builds upon this foundation of the gospel something that is not going to last, like made out of wood, hay, and stubble. What's going to happen? Well, the fire is going to sweep through someday, and it's going to apparently test everybody, both those who are made out of precious stones and gold and silver and so forth. But what's going to happen? Everything that is built out of perishable things, wood, hay, and stubble, is going to be burned up. And I think in the context to apply this to you and I personally and individually, right across the whole church and say that's your life, is absolutely wrong. What happens when Christ looks at a fig tree and says, huh, no figs? He curses it and it dries up. What happens if chapter 15 of John, where there's a branch that does not bear fruit, it doesn't make it into heaven, even though it has no fruit, it is cut off and cast into the fire. And the guy who has the five talents and the two talents and the one talent, the guy with one talent comes back and says, I know you're a really hard master. So I hid it. No fruit. No growth. No work in the garden. No work on the building. He's cast into utter darkness. He does not just make it into heaven. And I think to take this to apply to human beings and say, I'm a Christian, but I have absolutely no fruit, but I can make it, is out of context and is not biblical. But in the context, for somebody to come along and say, I am a really clever speaker. I can get more people saved than God can. And I'm going to do it. What's going to happen to all of his works, all of those people that he got saved through his elegant speech, through the Christmas decorating program, or the wonderful Bible studies on how to raise your kids successfully? And I'm kind of being a little bit ironic there and and possibly going the wrong direction. And they're going to stand before God and the fire is going to sweep through And if they're not standing upon the solid foundation of God through Christ alone, they're not standing on anything solid. And the fire is going to consume them. And so the guy who built that church, even though he might be saved, is going to have nothing. And Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers and he says, You are my glory. Meaning what? (laughs) When the trumpet sounds... Paul is arguing. He's arguing here with these guys too. I want you to stand there in glory with me. I want you to even have more glory than I do because you're my children and I'm laboring over you as a nursing mother. And Paul makes that argument and positions himself in that way. Why? Not because he wants more glory and says, look, I got so many scalps in heaven or whatever, but that he would say, you're there. Praise God. So the context, I think, 
argues very strongly that we look at what's the consequences of this thing that Paul is speaking about. People who would think they're in the church, have been told that they're in the church or in Christ even, but they're hanging on to the charisma, to the eloquence, to the wonderful speech of somebody that's their pastor or that's their spiritual leader, rather than Christ and Christ alone. So how well do we understand the gospel? Both to preach it, but even more importantly, to hear it. Now going quickly, just to in the other direction, what about those of us who are being saved? What are we being saved from? What are we being saved towards or into? And if we don't understand this, we, we don't really, as I said earlier, don't appreciate the power of this or the wisdom of this. But I've already talked a little bit about having nothing to offer except that we are under damnation. What are we being saved to? Escape from damnation? Well, I would say emphatically yes. <laughs> but is that the end of the road? Is God really happy to get people saved from damnation? I think that's only part of the picture. And I would encourage you to look at the end of chapter 2, the very last sentence there of chapter 2. But we have the mind of Christ. Now, how does Paul get there? And you have to go back up into most of chapter 2 and read down through that. I would encourage you to do that. It's kind of a messy day. You sit there and read these chapters uh, this afternoon, if you would. Uh, but what does Paul argue here? He argues that if the powers of this world had known the gospel, they would not have crucified Christ. Just like in Aslan's you know, story in the Chronicles of Narnia. They didn't understand the deeper magic. So they thought they were getting rid of him. But rather, he arose with greater power than ever before. Christ was that. Kill him. Crucify him. We'll be done with him. No way. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back in glory and power. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay. So what does that mean in the gospel? He's saving us from damnation. But in the context, these people didn't understand, so they crucified him. And then there's that famous verse 9, but it hasn't entered into the heart, the thoughts of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And I think this is just a plain out statement. We, in our natural state, cannot and will not think of gospel things with understanding. If, you know, a husband or a wife or a mom or dad or a kid or somebody at work gives us the gospel, what do we think about it if we're unsaved? We just don't understand it. We may be polite. We might even to conversation, but nope, it's not for me. It's okay for you. Or we might even be hostile against it. But it's not something that we see as wisdom and we will not buy into it, if you put it in human terms. But then he starts out in verse 10 and he says, but the Spirit has revealed these things to us. Do we know everything there is to know? And the answer is No. But how do I know the gospel? Because God has given me his spirit. And that's the only way I get to know God. He initiates the activity here. And it raises a simple question. How, and I'm paraphrasing this, how much can I tell you what my wife is thinking? <laughs> you know, sometimes I get good clues. I've been married to her for a few years now. Other times, you know, you know she's a woman. She thinks differently than I do. I'm hopeless in that point. How do you know what's on the, another man's or woman's mind? You don't. 
except they open their mouth and reveal it to you. How do you know God? Absolutely impossible for a human being to know God, except God takes the initiative, and Hebrews 1, he sends his son, and he speaks to us. And here, in the context of chapter 2 here, he sends his spirit who searches the deep things of God. He knows everything about God, and he reveals God to you. He comes and dwells in you. And so Paul can now argue, you have the mind of Christ. Now, does that make you smarter than the guy next to you at work? No. You might still be the guy that nobody wants around because you always mess things up. What does it mean? Can we say anything positive about having the mind of Christ? And I think so. And I'll just enumerate these a little bit rather than trying to look at the various texts. But what is the issue that Paul is writing about? Division here in the church. If you have the mind of Christ, what do you think of Apollos, Peter, Cephas, or whatever you want to call him, and, and uh, Apollos, along with Christ? They are what? Fellow servants, each one sent by God, each one having an assigned role to play in my life spiritually, in the church's life spiritually. Praise God. That's a dramatic shift from thinking, huh, I've got to hang on to Apollos. He's the only one that's got any eloquence among these guys, or whatever we might say. So the argument is, right in the context, if the mind of Christ in you, you're going to think differently about the servants that God has sent to you. That would be true here in this church or any other church. I mean, we're not talking about people who are proclaiming things that ought to be addressed you know, as wrong and heresy, but they're proclaiming the scriptures. Who do we build our life around? It ought to be Christ. And we thank God for this person, and we thank God for that person. We thank God with different gifts and different personalities, but we praise God for these people. And even Paul tacks in for life and death and today and tomorrow as well. We thank God, the giver of every perfect gift, because we have the mind of Christ. Do you see Christ ever complaining about God's relationship with him? He came to do the will of and to do the work of his father and to say the words of his father that gave him to say. Without complaint, he bowed to the cross. Father, your will be done. So if the mind of Christ is in us, what about in chapter 2 of Philippians where he talks about you know, having the same mind of Christ? That is, I would put the interest of another person ahead of myself. This is tremendously practical, even with my wife. <laughs> How many times do I selfishly say, me first? <laughs> and you guys and ladies as well, I suspect you have the same problem. Do we love as we ought to love? But if I have the mind of Christ, I start to think about things differently. And certainly we won't be cured of our sin, not until we enter into glory. But we'll begin to address the issue of sin. And in chapter 10 of this book, what about the communion table? There's this guy, family over here. Every time it's like Thanksgiving all over again. And this family over here, they barely got a crust of bread. And there's no interest in this family to share with that family. There's drunkenness and so forth. And Paul says, this ought not to be. If we have the mind of Christ, what begins to happen? We see our fellow brother and sister in a different light. And it's very, very practical and very powerful and so Paul, as he writes to the Thessalonian people in chapter 1, the verses 9 and 10, the gospel came to you and you turned from your dead idols to serve the living Lord Jesus while you wait for his coming. And were they perfect believers? Of course not. 
but they were radically different people than they used to be. Once they were living for themselves. Now, to some small degree at least, by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, they have the mind of Christ and they see the work of God and rejoice in it. They see the people of God and they struggle because sometimes it is a struggle. But they see the people of God and they rejoice that God saved that guy over there and me too. And may God bless us that I would minister to him and receive his ministry. But I, I wouldn't choose to be there, God. But you brought us together, God. And the mind of Christ does wonderful things at bringing people together around the gospel and for the sake of the gospel and the God who sent the gospel to us. And so that is part of what's going on. And so what does that mean to you and I? Or maybe as a church. Can a church as itself proclaim the gospel? And yes, I think so. And I think the same way that a human individual can as well as a believer. And we mentioned that it was mentioned in Sunday school class about before our children, what do we need to say sometimes? I'm a sinner. Before the world, what does the church need to say? I'm a sinner. Before one another, what do we need to say? You know, I'm a sinner. Or even as Paul writes, I'm a wretched man. You stay away from me. I'm that bad. To own up to our sin. In other words, to position ourselves as being somebody who is in need of the gospel. But even now as believers, are we believers because we attend a good church and we look pretty, you know, sanctified today? And we sing good hymns and we have the right Bible translation and so forth. All those things that people like to argue. Are we sanctified through our works or through Christ? Are we redeemed through our works or through Christ? And how many times does self-righteousness creep in even after we've been saved? Why do I need the gospel today? Because I'm prone to wander as we sang a little while ago. And may the Lord bless us that we would come back over and over again. I'd like to close by reading a statement that a friend of mine, a Mainer who grew up in Maine, uh, actually posted uh, on his Facebook page uh, a couple weeks ago. And it was written on a Saturday, so he was looking forward to Sunday. He says, Pastor, remember this. The authority of your preaching does not depend at all on you. <laughs> wow. Taking the air right out of my balloon right there, isn't it? Does not depend upon me. Okay? Nor your pulpit presence, nor your learning, nor your booming voice, nor your pastoral warmth. The Word of God is objectively authoritative, with objectively in big, bold letters. You preach the oracles of God, referencing Romans chapter 3. Preach Christ tomorrow with cosmic confidence. And I thought that was really well stated. Owen Strand, by the way, if any of you here know about him. He grew up in our home church uh, in Machias, Maine. Uh, anyway, uh, he wrote that to encourage pastors. But it ought to be very encouraging to all of us. That God has a power that is not dependent upon us. That ought to just marvel and amaze us. God did that. He saved that person. And don't forget, he saved me. And how does Paul describe us in chapter 1? The nothings of this world. That was me. Not you. That was me. Lastly, 
to skip uh, the end of the scripture. In uh, Psalm 73, if you want to turn there, I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. Psalm 73, the psalmist, uh, Asaph, is struggling, looking around the world and seeing all of his neighbors and other people around who are doing really well, who are blatantly sinners. Say, God, is it worth serving you? Look at the blessings that these people have. So he gets down to verse uh, 16, and he writes this. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a, a wearisome task. This is how does he look at his unsaved neighbors and so forth. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And later on he says, whom do I desire on earth? None but you and you alone, God. But I think those verses, 16 and 17, I'd like to leave you with. How do you switch, if we want to talk about humanly speaking, how do we do that? And this is all of God who brings this about. We go into the sanctuary of God and we start looking at things from God's perspective. Christ has become wisdom for us. Put on Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ and listen to his words. And construct a worldview that comes not from me and my wisdom or various neighbors and family members or traditions that I've learned, but comes from the scriptures. Go into the sanctuary of God. Sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to him. And may God grant us an understanding of the greatness of God, of his gracious gospel. And may we be God worshipers because we know the gospel. And we praise him. Amen.